Hi, I'm Amy Blackthorne, and this is Blackthorne Grove. Alright, are we ready to get started, you guys? So, thank you all for coming tonight. We wanted to uh, make this an opportunity for people who are just starting out to get some helpful, useful information from people who've been around the block a couple times. I don't know if that's us, but we all look that level of tired. So maybe, maybe it's true. <laughs> we had hoped to do this, of course, the weekend of Halloween, but things being as they were, we had some, some difficulties with the hurricane and I hope everyone weathered that storm as well as they possibly could have. I know it caught everybody off guard, really. But um, what we're, what we're going to be doing tonight is uh, each person here is going to have an opportunity to speak for a few minutes on a topic that was important to them when they were just starting out. And if you have questions along the way, shoot them to me in a private message and we're going to read them out at the end and answer questions for you as a group. So with that said, I will turn it over to Misha. Thank you very much, Morthelis. So hi. Uh, I'm Misha Magdalene. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. And like all the other speakers here, I am a witch. I first started practicing witchcraft way back at the dawn of time, uh, like in the 1980s. And like many of today's speakers, I'm a writer. And a lot of what I write about is the intersection of magic and witchcraft with issues of gender, sexuality, and consent. So, what I want to talk to you about today are three things that I wish someone had told me when I started exploring witchcraft. Uh, these aren't exactly magical secrets. They're more like lessons I had to learn the hard way that no one ever explicitly taught me. It's my hope that in saying these things to you, you'll have heard them at least once and have them rattling around in your brain. And there's dessert at the end in the form of a quick magical exercise, which is both relevant to this topic and incredibly useful on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, I use this all the time. So, here are three principles I wish I'd known as a beginner witch. One, you are allowed to have boundaries. Witchcraft is an art, and learning any art will push you to grow in ways you didn't expect. After all, we're talking about working with magic, with the forces of nature, with power and mystery. Walking the crooked path of the witch can push you outside your comfort zone to grow as a witch and as a person to confront things about yourself you've been avoiding. But with that in mind, knowing how to establish your personal boundaries, strongly defined, firmly enforced boundaries is incredibly important as a witch. You have to have a good sense of what you're okay with, uh, what you're willing to do, and what crosses a line for you. Those boundaries can help keep you safe in situations where you might otherwise come to harm. Not only do they keep out unwanted influences, they actually help you maintain a sense of self, a sense of who you are in circumstances where your identity could be subsumed in the will of someone else or something else. Two, you are allowed to say no. Part of having a boundary is drawing a line between this 
and that between me and not me. And part of enforcing that boundary is being able to say no. No, this crosses my boundary. No, this is not welcome in my space. No, this goes against my values. No, I don't wanna. That shouldn't be a controversial statement, but there are an awful lot of folks who feel that hard refusals are somehow, I don't know, rude. And maybe they are, but speaking frankly, anyone telling you that enforcing your own boundaries with a hard no is rude is likely not speaking with your best interests in mind. And besides, making friends with everybody is rarely a witch's highest priority. Three, you are allowed to walk away. This one was the hardest for me to learn because I never want to give up on people or projects, but eventually I came to understand that sometimes the best, most life-affirming thing you can do is leave a situation, an interaction, a relationship. When you're in a place where your boundaries aren't respected and your hard no is ignored, the only other option you have is to just walk away. You know that saying, there are plenty of fish in the sea? Still true. Other teachers, other gods and spirits, other friends and lovers are out there. No relationship, no lore or learning, no promise of power or mystical experience is worth being spiritually or emotionally entangled with people or other beings that don't acknowledge your own autonomy, your sovereignty over yourself. So, and now dessert. Uh, this is a quick and dirty exercise that I call expanding your sphere. Uh, you don't need any special tools or a place to work. All you need is a couple of minutes, a few deep breaths and the ability to visualize. You start by closing your eyes and then taking a moment to interrupt whatever thought processes are going through your head. I do this by literally halting physically and saying or thinking, stop. Take a slow, deep breath and hold it for a moment, gathering any tension in your body, and then exhale slowly and release that tension. Repeat this twice more each time, gathering the tension in your body and releasing it. Then, while continuing to breathe slowly and evenly, focus on the center of your body, wherever you feel that to be. For some of you, this might be your heart, while for others, it might be your lower belly or a couple of inches below your navel. Envision a point of light in your center, white or blue or any other color that speaks to you of protection, strength, and safety. This point of light is your own vital power. Breathe into that point of light and see it grow brighter and more brilliant within you as you breathe. And then when you're ready, take a deep, deliberate breath, hold it for a moment, and then exhale slowly into that point of light as though you were blowing up a balloon. See it expand in all directions, becoming a hazy sphere, a nimbus of light and color surrounding you. It doesn't have to be large. It can be no more than an inch or two beyond the surface of your skin. But that sphere that you've projected around yourself is a clear boundary, a demarcation between you and not you, pushing out influences that aren't of your making or invitation, leaving behind only yourself and what you've chosen to bring into your emotional and spiritual space. And then when you're ready, 
go open your eyes and get on with your life. Uh, this is what I think of as quick and dirty magic for practical use in everyday world. Uh, it's a way of reasserting your own personal emotional and magical space. And with practice, this can become second nature, an almost instantaneous ingrained response to unwanted feelings of incursion or imposition. I've used this technique walking through a crowded room or stuck in my car in traffic or in the middle of a heated conversation. As I said in the beginning, to be a witch is to work directly with power and mystery, to get your hands dirty. Sometimes it means literally digging in the dirt. Sometimes it means doing your own research and sometimes it means making hard choices. I've framed these principles that I've discussed as things you're allowed to do, but honestly, as a witch, you aren't just allowed to do these things, you have to be able to do them. You have to own your own power independent of anyone else's desires or opinions. And that means learning to be your own person and make your own choices, even or especially when someone else is telling you that you have to do what they think is best. At the end of the day, you belong to you and you're the one who chooses to do what to do with your power. So yeah, be your own witch. Thank you. Thanks, Misha. That was absolutely amazing. No is absolutely a complete sentence, and I'm so glad that you talked about boundaries. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Patty Wigington, and I'm super excited to be here with everybody. Um, like a lot of the other presenters here tonight, I'm a published author. I work as an educator and a priestess in my own community. Um, I've been a practicing witch for a really long time. Like Misha, I started in the late 80s. Um, so, you know, I'm 52 now, so you can do the math. It's, it's been a few minutes that I've been practicing. And what I wanted to share with you guys tonight is something that is, I, I do an entire workshop on this topic, actually. Um, and it sort of develops um, in response to a lot of the questions that I would get from people who were new to magical practice. How many times have you thought to yourself, oh, man, you know, I'd really like to dive into the witchcraft, really want to do the magic, but man, I am flat broke and I do not have supplies. We've all been there. I've been that person. Um, I've been broke and I've been not broke and guess which one I like better. But the fact is when you're broke, when you're strapped for cash or it's two o'clock in the morning and there's something you need and the old local witchy shop is closed because it's two o'clock in the morning, you've got to learn to make do with what you have. Um, and Misha made the, the very valid point that being a witch is uh, based on, you have to be willing and able to work with power and mystery. And I would add to that, you have to be able to work with what you have on hand. If you think about it, that's what our ancestors did. You know, 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, they were not jumping online and going to azuregreen.com and ordering a bunch of stuff. They weren't going on Amazon getting that next day delivery of magical supplies. You had to work with what you had, whether it was things that you grew or things that you bartered for or things that you had just picked up as you were walking around the neighborhood. So that was kind of how I first learned to do magic was working with the things I had. So if you think about it, for, forget for a minute, just, just for a few minutes, forget about all the herbs, forget about all the candles, forget about all the crystals, forget about all the cool stuff that you saw at that shop that was just way beyond your credit card budget. 
start thinking about what do I have nearby? What do I have in my kitchen? What do I have in my bathroom? Got kids? Kids' toys are a great source of magical inspiration. If you have things in your house that you can associate with non-magical, if you have non-magical things that you can associate with magical activities, you can use them to make magic. I'll give you a couple of examples. Protection magic. Protection is huge. Everybody wants to feel safe, especially in their own home, right? So you can do things like you can charm a set of wind chimes and hang them on your front porch in front of the door. Um, you can hang bells for the same room and for the same reason. And as you're hanging them, tell those bells what their purpose is. It is to keep harmful people away from us. You can use, I mentioned kids' toys. One of my favorite protection spells is one I did for my son when he started driving. I took a matchbox car and I made it a replica of his car that he was driving. And I wrapped it in Nerf and I wrapped it in bubble pack. And then I wrapped it in duct tape. It looked like a key, a kilo just going in the back of his car. I'm sure if he ever got pulled over, they would question it. So there's this little brick in the back of my son's car and it keeps him safe. That matchbox car is his car protected with him in it. What about love? What do you have in your house that makes you think of love? I'm a total, total sucker for those little Valentine's candy hearts that come out every year in February. Candy hearts are not only associated with love because they're hearts, they've already got messages on them. They've got messages. Take one out, read it to yourself every morning. Pull a, pull a handful of candy hearts out as you're looking in the mirror first thing in the morning and read them to yourself. Hey, baby. Hot stuff. Do that kind of thing. That's love magic right there. Baking. I always say that my love language is food because for me to express the way I feel about people, I feed them. Um, so as you're baking things, put love magic, put your intent into every batter you stir, every loaf of bread that you're kneading from scratch, all of these things. What about money magic? Everybody likes to have a little bit of extra, okay? What about that little piggy bank that's been sitting on your dresser gathering dust? Sure, it's just a little ceramic pig, but what if you told it it was so much more? What if you told it that it was a place of magic and power and that more money was going to come into it. What if you enchanted that piggy bank? What about your wallet or your purse? There's an old there's an old uh, story or superstition about money on the floor goes out the door, so you don't put your purse or your wallet on the floor. It should always be on a chair or on a table. But you can enchant your wallet or your purse to attract more money to you. You don't have to have a whole bunch of fancy schmancy magical materials. Um, one of the other things I love to do, I'm a big fan of banishing magic. And I know we don't have a whole ton of time, but I wanted to share with you guys, since I know right now a lot of people are struggling and a lot of people have just yuck and stuff we got to get rid of because 2020, let's face it, it's kind of sucked. And we all want to get rid of all the 2020 juju we've been carrying around with us. Um, so I have two favorite ways of banishing things. One is with, it's simple. It's a baseball. I write what I want to get rid of on a baseball, and I live in cornfield country, so I go out to a field with my ball, and I take an aluminum bat, and I toss that ball. I almost feel like Babe Ruth calling my shot right out there, left field, and I toss that ball up, 
and I whack it as hard as I can. And I send that ball out as far as it will go. Before it even hits the ground, I turn around and I walk away and I don't look back. So that's an easy way to get rid of stuff. Trust me, 2020 is going on a baseball. The last thing I want to leave you with is my absolute 100% hands down favorite way of getting rid of stuff for people that you don't want. I'm a big fan of banishing magic because like Misha, I feel like boundaries are important. And I feel like it's important to be able to say, I do not want, whether it's a person, a thing, a situation, you have the right and almost a sacred duty to take care of yourself by eliminating things that don't serve you. This is where the toilet paper spell comes in. And every time I tell this story, I can tell like half the people watching are horrified and half of y'all are making a list. So to do the toilet paper spell real quick, super easy. It is absolutely the easiest magical spell you'll ever do. The first thing you're gonna need is a roll of toilet paper. Treat yourself, buy the good kind. Get you that Cottonelle or that two-ply Charmin. Get the good stuff. Don't get that, don't steal a roll from the gas station where you can like read a newspaper through it. Get the good toilet paper. Okay, so get your good toilet paper. The next thing you're gonna need is one of the most important tools in any witch's arsenal, a Sharpie marker. If you don't have one, go spend a buck 29 at Walmart or wherever and get you a Sharpie marker. You will not regret it. So you're gonna take your toilet paper and you're gonna pull off a length of squares. How many you use is up to you. I like nine because it's a magical number. Plus it gives me just about enough toilet paper for what I wanna do. But if you like other numbers, that's fine. <laughs> so the next thing you're gonna do, so you're gonna take your magical Sharpie marker and you're gonna write the name of the person or thing that you wanna banish on each square of that toilet paper. So now I've got nine squares. I've got that person's name on them. Now you're gonna go to the bathroom. And I'm not talking about you just drank some Gatorade and you're feeling a little bit like, you know, you, you're a little too hydrated and you need to go. No, I'm talking about you went to Taco Bell last night. You got a bag of chalupas with extra hot sauce. I'm talking about that kind of bathroom trip. Okay, this is what you're going to do. Take your toilet paper, go to the bathroom, do your thing that you're going to do. And when you're done, you are literally going to wipe your ass with that person or thing that you want to get rid of. And once you've done so, drop them in the toilet, flush, say goodbye, wash your hands, hygiene is important, and walk away. That person is out of your life. They are on your shit list, you are flushing them away, and they are gone. And you know what? You just made magic with nine squares of toilet paper, a Sharpie marker, and a bag of chalupas. So if anyone ever says you need high-tech, fancy, expensive supplies, I'm here to tell you, you do not. You can make magic with anything. If it's in your house, look at it and think about the magical potential. Because at the end of the day, all of the, the only tool you need to make magic is right up in here. And I'm going to wrap up because now it's Ashley's turn. <laughs> Thanks so much, Patty. I hope everybody can hear me okay. Uh, I want to say I live off a busy road, so at any time you might either hear a fire truck or a police car or my cats meowing, so might be a surprise. We'll see. <laughs> so Hi everyone, um, thanks so much for joining this evening. My name's Ashley and I'm the host of a podcast called Seeking Witchcraft. And my podcast is aimed at beginners and it talks about basic topics in the craft in about 30 minute to one hour long segments. Um, I've had some special guests on in the past too, which are actually here. So I have 
Patrick, who's going to be talking shortly, and Mortellus, who is hosting this wonderful event. Um, and today I am going to talk to you guys about how to have a low-key witchcraft practice. So to be respectful of all the presenters' time, I'm just going to reference four different things that you can do. But if you would like more information, I do have an episode on this topic on my podcast. Um, yeah, so before I begin, I want to say that there's a lot of reasons of why somebody might want to keep their practice low-key. This could be because of family reasons, work reasons, or really anything. Um, sometimes people just aren't in the best situation where they could be open with their practice, or sometimes people just aren't ready to come out of the broom closet yet. But I want to reassure to the people who this applies to that you are absolutely still a valid witch, even if you can't openly practice or if you aren't ready to tell people yet. And honestly, it's no one's business. You don't have to ever come out of the broom closet if you don't want to. And if anybody ever gives you any trouble about it, just remember that people have been hiding their witchcraft practices forever. This is absolutely not a new concept. So while being in the broom closet, you know, it can be sad sometimes. I myself am partially in the broom closet. Just know that you're not in there alone. There are other witches who you can connect with and who will understand what you are going through. Okay, so the four things I'm gonna talk about. The first thing I'm gonna talk about is sigils. So the unfortunate thing about sigils is it's very complicated to explain how to do this through voice without physically showing anybody what it looks like. <laughs> so I would recommend looking up sigils. So if you're taking notes, the way that this is spelled is S-I-G-I-L-S. The sigils are pretty much, you can kind of think of them as like charged symbols that may have like a spell or an intent or a purpose behind it. So for example, you can make a sigil for motivation. So every time you would see that sigil, you would become motivated. Now I will tell you when I first got into this, I thought sigils were a load of shit, just to say. <laughs> I was like, what is this piece of paper, this symbol? How is this gonna make my life magically like adapt or whatever? Uh, and then I ended up going to a workshop one time at a pagan festival that they had around my area. And one of the presentations was on sigil. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go and hear somebody out about this topic. So I never even said anything, but one of the very first things they did is they pulled up a picture and it was a picture of a big black circle. And in the middle or on the two sides of the circle, it was two smaller black circles. And they said, so what does this picture make you look up like? Or what, what does it make you think? Well, it was a picture of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so I started feeling nostalgic and happy. I started thinking of memories of when I was a kid going to the parks with my family. I started thinking of the movies I used to watch. And then the presenter goes, this is a sigil. And I was like, God damn, you're right. <laughs> so sigils are things that can make you have these feelings. They can invoke these things in you. Advertisements are sigils. If you look at a dash, you're gonna say, oh, that's the just do it symbol. Oh, like that belongs to Nike. So it works in a similar way. So there's a lot of different ways to make sigils. I would recommend if you're gonna look it up, try it out, test it out. There's no right or wrong way to do it. And sometimes some sigils look prettier than other, but it's something that you're personally making and I would recommend you keep it personal. So just look up different ways um, and see where you go from there. So with the sigils, you could do a lot of different things. If you're making something with dough, you can imprint it on the dough itself, you can trace it on your skin, you could put it on a post-it note behind your phone case, you can even put it in lotion on your arm and rub it into yourself. There's a lot of different options that you have with sigils that no one's going to really bat an eye at this random symbol that you have drawn. 
Okay, so my next thing that I would recommend is to invest in some earbuds and go to town on audiobooks, guided meditations, path workings, podcast episodes, even YouTube videos that you could just not look at the screen and put in your pocket. Generally, if you have headphones in, people aren't really going to ask you what you're doing, but I would have a backup plan just in case if you're in a situation like that, maybe tell them you're listening to an album that you have already heard about before or you have heard. So if they ask you questions, you know what to say. <laughs> the next thing are some divination tools. So a lot of times people may think that they can't have divination tools because it's gonna be too obvious. So I'm gonna give you four things you can use. So if you can't have tarot cards, you can use a deck of playing cards. And just to make sure you get the right amount of tarot cards, you can mix up and put some Uno cards in there. So you know which one is the major and the minor arcana. Uh, this is not necessarily a new concept to use playing cards as a form of tarot. Um, so it's definitely a thing. If you're going to do this, you can just make a list of what each card represents and keep it to yourself so you remember. And with tarot, it's usually good to start memorizing that. So just an idea. The second thing you can have is a pendulum. So a pendulum, if you don't know what it is, it's like a diamond shaped, usually a crystal, and it's used in a similar way to a Ouija board, kind of, where you ask questions, usually yes, no, or maybe questions. Um, so pendulums usually come on a single chain. So it might look a little weird to somebody who might be a little suspicious. So what you could do is you could take it off the single chain and put it on a necklace chain. And that way it's just a necklace. And when you need to use it, just unhook one side of the necklace, put the clasp on the loop connecting the crystal. And there you go, there's your pendulum. The next thing you can do is tea leaf reading. You can get really good at this if you like tea. I know Amy Blackthorn has some really good tea blends you might be able to use. Uh, tea leaf reading, you know, no one's gonna bat an eye if you put some loose leaf tea in a teacup and drink it. And you know, if you just happen to look at the bottom of it, no one's gonna really think twice. And the last divination tool I would recommend is scrying. So scrying usually involves a scrying mirror, but you don't necessarily have to have one of those. You can get a black bowl and fill it with water. You can scry and smoke, such as smoke from an, inc or like an incense stick, or you can use a candle flame. If you would really like a black mirror, you can make one by spray painting the glass of a picture frame and turning it around so it's glossy. And then just put a picture in front so no one's really going to notice that, hey, the glass is not, is not here. And then the last thing I will mention is if you want to be connected with the community around you, but you're a little worried about people finding out, make a fake email address and use that to sign up for witchcraft groups or Twitter accounts or blogs or anything. And for the love of all that is good, make sure you log out and clear your history <laughs> before, before you get off the computer or off your phone or your tablet or whatever it is that you're using. You can also use this email address as a magical journal where you can email yourself journal entries if you feel a little suspicious about keeping you know, a physical journal with what you've been doing or a BOS. You can make one on Google Drive. So there's some multi-use uh, functions with this. If you're also gonna make a Facebook account that you can link with this fake email address, make sure you do not put a picture of yourself if you do not wanna be found. And if there's some people in particular that you don't want to find you, make sure you block them immediately and the people in their outer circle and do a couple sweeps to make sure that you got everyone. Um, I'm just gonna say one more piece of advice. If you wanna do a spell, but you're worried about somebody hearing you, you can absolutely do a, you know, do an entire ritual. You can cast an entire circle in silence because you might be better off silently saying whatever it is that you're gonna say with intent and force in your head rather than whispering it in your room and constantly looking over your shoulder. 
Or if you really, really want to say it out loud, you can maybe do your spell work in the bathroom and have the shower running. And as a bonus, include the energy from the running water into your working because someone's got to pay for that water. So you might as well use it with your magic as well. All right. Well, that is it for my my little piece of low-key witchcraft practice. Thank you so much for listening. And um, if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat. And I believe that Patrick is next. Thank you so much, Ed. No problem. Patrick. You need to unmute, Patrick. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Hi all, my name is Patrick, and like many others, I've been around since the late 80s. Um, been the high priest of an active Gardnerian coven now for 27 years straight, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm not a published author, so. Um, but let's talk a little bit about published authors. Every book that you find on the craft, and this was true even back in the 80s, one of the biggest sections always seems to focus on magical ethics. And if I knew then what I knew now, I would tear that chapter out of every book that I come across and I would use it to line the cat box. Okay? They are entirely worthless. Um, when you look at many people's Wicca 101 syllabuses, you will see a great amount of time is spent on ethics. Again, garbage. And I'm looking at some of your faces like, holy shit, where is this nut job going? Um, in 32 years time of being in the craft, I have yet to run across a person who needs to be told that manipulating others is wrong. I have yet to come across somebody that didn't know that it wasn't right to murder somebody or to steal from somebody, okay? And these things are very black and white. Everybody knows them. Most of us were raised in the Western Hemisphere. <clears throat> and so what the hell is this big deal about ethics? And in a very short period of time, we found out that ethics wasn't about black and white. For the witch, it was about the gray. As Misha pointed out, there's boundary issues you will come across in the craft. There's magical issues you're gonna come across in the craft and the black and whites are easy. Those aren't the things people need to be told what to do, okay? We are not a faith-based religion. We don't have mommy and daddy in the sky saying thou, thou shalt not do this or blessed is he who does this. Um, and so the focus really becomes what do we do with all of this gray area when we're not sure, when the answer isn't clear, okay? And that's what's challenging for people. And in the case of unethical individuals, that gray area can be a source of manipulation for the new person, okay? So our focus is always to tell people that the important thing isn't ethics, but it's to identify and develop a method of ethical thinking. So what the hell is ethical thinking? To start with, people tend to confuse the idea of morals and ethics. Morals, if you wanted to oversimplify it, is kind of that sense of right and wrong, that understanding of right and wrong that you have between yourself and your concept of deity. Ethics is that sense of right and wrong 
that's an understood amongst a group of individuals. So a lot of covens really don't pay any attention to the threefold law or the Wiccan read. And I'm very serious about that. <coughs> Alexandrians don't, Gardnerians don't, Georgians don't, Welsh trad don't, Blue Star doesn't. Um, they laugh at it. And again, this is stuff you're gonna see in the books because it's written for the lowest common denominator, but that's not where people want you to stop. That's where people want you to start, okay? And so when you develop a method or a process for ethical thinking, it lets you take those situations and circumstances that aren't clear, that aren't black and white and say, okay, how do I approach this? How do I handle this? Is this behavior acceptable to me? All right. Um, in mundane professional organizations, they have ethics committee, not because the members don't know what the ethical expectations are amongst themselves, but because they're there to give guidance for those times when people really don't know. And when you're first starting out, we always suggest that you very much start to learn a divination technique. But sometimes those cards just aren't clear. Sometimes those runes are not giving you something you can work with. And you're tasked as a spiritual person to say, okay, I need to figure this out. And you never have to figure it out alone. Sometimes these discussions happen in groups. I know within our coven, before we do any group magic, there's usually about a 45 minute discussion, even if it's on something as simple as a healing or as simple as job magic. Um, and that's to try to see all the ways in which what we are going to do, whether it's physical, whether it's magical, um, is going to impact the environment, the members of the group, the people we're working for. Will this be a positive experience? Will this be a negative experience? You know, people will say, for example, in the craft, harm none. I'm not a doctor. I did not take the Hippocratic Oath, okay? But I can tell you right now that if somebody's foot gets mangled in a car accident, I would much prefer to see that foot amputated and the person live and survive and have a meaningful, fulfilling life than see them die over something simple. So <clears throat> what my suggestion to you guys would be, and you can easily do this. A lot of colleges have their courses either online or free things or even TED Talks. Find something that discusses ethical thinking and the process of coming to an ethical conclusion for those gray areas. And trust me, in the very beginning of your studies, everything's gonna be black and white. But after a very short period of time, you're going to encounter those gray areas I'm talking about. And all of the stuff that you read in the books is going to be worthless to you. So it's much better to have that process in place really take a good look at who you are, what your experiences are to date, and where you're going with it. And my biggest piece of advice, never, ever, ever hesitate to say no. Just like Misha pointed out, like Patty pointed out, even if it's your teacher, there are plenty of teachers in the world, plenty of legitimate traditional initiates. Not all of them are created equal. 
Okay. Some people have their own best interest in mind. And it's perfectly okay to say, no, I am not going to take part in this working. I'm not going to contribute my energy to it. I'm not going to share the space for this. And this is why. So that's my piece of the puzzle. And I forget who comes after me. So hi, Heather, you're next. Hey, everybody. Thanks, Patrick. Um, I'm Heather Gaffney Darnell. I'm with the Phoenix Nest Healing, and I'm here to talk about tarot and how you choose a deck and how you get started. I was 15 when I got started, and it was the Mythic Tarot. It is a deck based on Greek mythology, and so Greek mythology is kind of like where a lot of people start with paganism anyway. So I've been a tarot reader a lot longer than I've been a witch, and I commandeered my dad's deck he got a deck out of curiosity and I stole them and taught myself how to read and I've been doing it ever since so um, some decks that I looked up and kind of got an idea for you all to look at first of all when you're choosing a deck you really need to choose what speaks to you um, I know that people are like go get a writer way it's your beginner um, I don't necessarily agree with that. Our history with Tarot is a lot older than the Rider-Waite. Um, to kind of follow up on what Ashley was saying is that it was a playing, um, uh, it was a game, and that the cards eventually evolved into a divin divination tool. And so you can use a playing deck. So if you you know, really can't afford to go get the $30 deck, go get the, you know, buck 50 deck of playing cards. Um, I love the idea of combining it with like an Uno deck. The truth is you can use pretty much any playing deck to use as a form of divination and you can apply your own symbolism. Um, some of the decks that I was looking at, the Mythic Tarot is one of them. Um, another one is the Halloween tarot. It's one of my very favorites that some of the symbolism in there is like fun stuff like the emperor is Frankenstein and the empress is the bride of Frankenstein and the suits, um, pentacles or pumpkins and your wands or imps and, and things like that. It's very playful and, and whimsical. Um, and Mortellus will be sharing with you all that there's also a cat's tarot. Actually, there's more than one cat tarot, but the one in particular is very fun, very whimsical. Um, and I've listed like a number of decks that might be a good start for any, um, any person. Um, there are also several links that I've included that are decks that can be downloaded on PDF file and that you can print out and you can, you know, cardboard backing to give them some oomph or even print them out on cardstock. But, you know, I remember being a student and, you know, tarot cards can be expensive. So sometimes we just use what we can um, going with Patty's idea of, being practical about our witchcraft and our tools. Um, what else did I want to include? Um, 
So things that I wish I had known when getting started that trusting my instincts and my intuition was okay when looking at the cards that companion books are absolutely fantastic and they teach us things about the about the decks but your relationship with a tarot deck is really what is most important um the other thing that i wish that i had known is that tarot reading is very much like telling a story that there's a lot of traditional meaning that we can learn and we can memorize and there's nothing wrong with that but just looking at a card and the colors that are in it, the backdrop, who's like, is the person sitting on a throne? Are they looking to the left or the right? Do they have flowers? Do they have animals around them? You know, all of their surroundings can tell you so, so, so much about what's happening in that card. And the third thing that I would impart to you is you really got to find your own way. And it goes back to the trusting your instincts that there is no one way to read cards. Some of us are very traditional about it and memorize the meanings. Some of us are fully and completely intuitive and that's okay too. And some of us are the middle, like I'm the middle road. I do both. Um, so I wish that I had known that it was okay to do that, that there weren't hard, fast rules. And one more, do not be afraid to ask or to ask questions. Um, asking questions is very important. There are opportunities out there, like I run a tarot salon online over Zoom twice a month. It is free to the public. We can get that information later, later through um, Metrolina tarot enthusi enthusiasts. Um, and it's an opportunity to practice and learn and not to have to pay any money and learn from different readers with different experiences. So that's pretty much all I have to say. Um, thank you. And now, Jay. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Jay. I am also that Kentucky witch um, from YouTube. Um, and I'm going to be talking about some resources, um, especially when you're first starting out. Now, not everyone is, you know, in a tradition where you have a coven. We have a lot of solitary practitioners here. So I'm going to touch on some subjects and some things that will be helpful, especially when you're first starting out. Um, things like books, um, et cetera, websites. Um, but you have to make sure when you're first starting out that, A, this is right for you. This is really what you want to do. You want to, you know, pursue witchcraft or magic, the tradition, what have you. Um, but the one thing that I can really give you advice on is don't do it alone. Even if you are a solitary, find a mentor. Reach out to the local occult community if you have one. If not, you can go online. There are really good resources that aren't TikTok, that aren't Instagram, um, that you can you know access. Um, also, uh, there's podcasts you can listen to. Ashley, you know, not not just plugging you, but you do have a great podcast, and I highly recommend listening to it, especially if you're first starting out. Um, now, social media in itself um, 
it can be a helpful, but it can also um, be a little bit harmful because you're getting so many different opinions that you really don't know which one you know might be a valid one. So definitely look for reputable sources. Um, books, I cannot encourage enough to read. Um, there are a, quite a few great starter books. Um, I know a lot of people, their first book is Raymond Buckland's Big Blue Book, which it's, it's a little bit out of date now, but it still has some really valuable information in it. So that is one that you should definitely pick up and read. Also, um, Thorin Mooney's Traditional Wicca is a great go-to, even if you're not a Gardnerian, Alexandrian, even if you're you know, just a solitary, that is a great resource uh, to go to. As, <clears throat> you know, as far as websites, um, Mortellus has a great website. Uh, Amy has a great website. Look for established practitioners that have their own websites. That way, you know, they're reputable. Yes, even you, Mortellus. <laughs> but um, just make sure that you're, what you're doing is what's right for you. The working that you're doing is what you need to do for fulfillment of yourself. And that pretty much sums up everything I have to say. So I think, um, Arsanya, you're next. Thank you. And before I get started, I just want to be, I just want to extend a lot of gratitude to all the speakers so far saying like, really trust yourself. If that had been something that I would have heard right from the start, things would have been different or maybe it would have ended up in the same place, but still. Hi, I'm Ira Sonia Moon. My pronouns are she and her. I'm a reclaiming witch and initiate in that tradition. I'm also a fairy student, F-E-R-I. And I'm an author of a few books. And um, a lot of my magical work focuses around, at least now it's moving towards this idea of building resilience and inner power and this idea of wholehearted magic and how we can come to our magic with our full hearts. So. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Tonight, I, or whenever you're watching this, uh, I'm going to be talking about choosing deities to work with and building your first altar. But I'm gonna change what I'm gonna do just a little bit because the choosing your own deities, I actually think of this in a different way. I actually look at this as building relationships with deities. So um, it's, it's a relationship, right? Just like any relationship. It's not just like I pick you and thus we are together. Um, things that I would say first off before I talk about this, um, when I first started, I felt like it was necessary for me to work with deities. I want to tell you that it's not. If you'd like to, fantastic. If you don't want to, that's great. You don't have to. Um, you can also work with more than one deity. You can work with a whole pantheon of deities. You can work with folks all over the place. Also, it's also about what's the purpose of the relationship in the first place. Place. I mean, why are you doing this? And so this is where I want to move into that I feel is super important when we're building relationships with deities. There are different ways to approach it, right? Just as you would with a person, you might have this thing where there's a spark and you're just sort of drawn to each other. Like for me, my name comes from Iris. So that's sort of my spark moment. And there's also sort of this, um, another one where one seeks the other one out. 
right? I sort of got really interested in Aphrodite. And so I sort of sought her out and sort of went from there. And there's also deities that you might work with because you have to, because you're doing a ritual and you've decided that's the deity that you're working with or you're teaching the class or teaching in a witch camp or anything like that. So you need to get to know that deity in order to support that work. So, but just like any relationship, you know, it's not just like I choose you and you're the person. When I start to get to know someone, I wanna find out more about them. So I find out their stories. I find out the culture that they are immersed in. I find out, you know, the different things that they might like and things like that, because it's a relationship. It's not a, I choose you in your mind. A couple of things that I find to be super important about this is that like any relationship, so if you, I'll stop for a second. If you have weird things about relationships, how you have one relationship is often how you have other relationships. That was a very important lesson for me. So for building relationships with deities, it's about, for me at least, um, about showing up. It's about showing up and it also being a reciprocal relationship. I actually don't approach deities as being over me. I actually approach deities as being in devotion, perhaps, in communion, perhaps, but not supplication. Um, I am, a, you know, used to be Catholic way back in the day, and so I want to get away from that. Um, so I also consider myself divine. So um, while there's definitely wisdom in deities that I don't have, um, I don't look at it as this power over sort of dynamic. So just like any relationship, I'm just gonna keep saying that because this is something you already know. You know what works in relationships, right? Another way that I get to know deities is by just being with them and sitting with that thought. Okay, so I'm sitting, when I first started to get to know Aphrodite, I was sort of like, I'm just gonna sit and sort of like welcome your presence and welcome anything that you have to say or anything you need to show me or anything that I might need to hear, sense, feel, anything like that. And that takes making time for the relationship, making time. I actually work with a lot of deities. So it's like a polyamory situation where I have to make sure that I have make time for this one, make time for this one, make time for this one so that everyone feels like they're getting, you know, what we've agreed to. And that's one of the other things. What are your agreements with in this relationship? You know, I agree to show up for you and you know, it's often reciprocal. So often the question that I get with deities a lot is that folks will say, yeah, but the deity's not talking to me and they're not doing anything. And why aren't they, why, why are they so quiet? When I hear that, I ask, what have you done lately? How are you showing up for this relationship? And to be clear, I have moments too where the deities I work with are kind of quiet. That's just the way it is, just like your relationships in real life. You know, sometimes that's just the way it is and sort of passes in, passes out. So another thing, and this has been brought up a few times with consent and also with boundaries. I also tend to, when I'm building a relationship with deity, I'm, you know, I'm sitting with them, I'm working with them. Maybe I'm following some things that I've seen in different books, but I'm also trusting my own intuition and sort of what I'm feeling they're asking of me and things like that. But I'm also having regular check-ins about, is this still working for me? Is this a relationship that's still working for me? Because I have some deities that I used to work with in the beginning. I worked with Bridget a ton when I was first starting out. 
and witchcraft. And now, you know, we hang out, we're still good acquaintances, but we don't have like this heavy duty thing like I have with Aphrodite now. Um, so that's okay too. You don't have to like commit yourself for the rest of your life that this is the being that you're working with. And also you might, so, or they might really pull you along, drag, whatever. So a couple of things too with building relationship with deity. So I'm gonna dovetail in this building your first altar to this because one of the main ways that I interact with deity is by building altars to them. I have many, many, many altars around my house um, to various deities, you know, uh, Hecate's over here. Um, Aphrodite has a zillion altars. I kind of lost track at this point. Um, but these were all things that felt like I could create space, not just physical, but also very intentional space for them in my life. And for me, seeing things is a thing that works for me and having beautiful things is a thing that works for me to focus my intention and to sort of have this place where we can have our relationship and I can have a space for just you and me. And so for building your first altar, whether for deity or for something else, I always want to think about what is, like we were talking before, what's the thing that's sort of in the sigils? What's the thing that, that cultivates the emotion that you want to have here? That's one of the things that I think of. So I think of Aphrodite, I think of beautiful things. I mean, she has a lot of correspondences to be clear, uh, or at least I still feel like those are true. Some I think are, I go off book a little bit with that. But you know, my Aphrodite altar has pearls on it. It has, my first one had just a picture of her that I found on Google and I put in a frame and that was great. And she's upgraded since then. But the things that, you know, just like with a friend things that you think might bring them joy or might make them really feel like they, that you know each other and that you're there for each other. But any altar that you might build can have just, I always say beautiful things, but you know, beautiful is in the eye of all of you. And what that means to me is not what it means to you. So I have altars that have, you know, bowls of water, um, maybe representations of elements. Um, maybe they have offering bowls. So for Aphrodite, for a while, I have this wine from Cyprus. And so I would pour some wine for her and some sweet honey deliciousness. Um, but now I'm thinking maybe I need to pour out a little bit more. So for your altars, really simple as best. We've already talked about trust your intuition. Like an altar doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to look exceptionally witchy. Uh, it doesn't have to have a candle on it, but it could. It could also be when I was in an office setting at my work, it was just a seashell. Because that to me reminded me of what that was. It doesn't have to be this big glorious thing and it also can. So other things for altars, if you know, it could be, like I said, for a deity, for elements, maybe for an intention that you're really curious about. So maybe you're working on self-love or something like that or protection. Maybe there are things on your altar that can help you remember that intention. Also, you might be working a spell or some other, or you have some thing that you're just not sure about. So you create an altar to that. And maybe that's the place where you can have things that remind you of that and maybe begin to sort of have more understanding of what's going on. But for me, altars is about spending some time at those places too, keeping them clean, um, not letting the wine run dry or water or things like that. And for me, I actually invite you at the first altar that you create 
of course, I'm from Reclaiming. We're a big fan of you're your own spiritual authority, so you could just toss this. That's fine. So for the first altar that you create, I invite you to create an altar to yourself because you are your greatest magic, right? You cultivating this intuition, this internal magic, this internal knowing, and knowing that you are already magical without any of this outside stuff. But create an altar to yourself and show up for that because that is where I think the foundation is. And I wish I'd known that because I went to everybody else to find it first. I think that's what I need to say. And I have next, I do not have anybody next because I just wrote myself down. <laughs> Thank you. It was beautifully said, beautifully. It, it, you inspired me to show something just quickly before Amy goes, but uh, you, were, you were talking about how altars didn't have to be very special. I work a bit with the Baba Yaga and she's associated with wisdom and with uh, brooms and mushrooms and the depths of the forest. And she's a practical lady, right? Very practical. And sometimes building your altar space is about being affordable. So I have this mushroom a desktop vacuum that I use as an altar to her. I have a little candle beside it. It was a couple dollars on Amazon and I use it to clean my workspace where I write books. And that's how she blesses my writing. So I'll shut up for Amy now. <laughs> that's perfectly done. I, I think that's very appropriate. As, as I was so beautifully introduced, my name is Amy Blackthorne. I have been a, a teacher all over the place. Uh, I started teaching in 1999. I have written my my three books out now. My very first was Blackthorn's Botanical Magic, The Green Witch's Guide to Essential Oils for Spellcraft, Ritual, and Healing. And it was such a, an amazing adventure getting to write a book and knowing that after I'm gone that there will be a, a record of the things that I said, the things that I thought. But there's a piece of that that I think is really important to look at as, as new practitioners. It says right on the cover that it's it's for green witches. And I feel like that's sort of limiting that magic can be anything. It can be that connection with yourself. It can be with the, the deities that you may or may not interact with. But I get a lot of questions from people who say, oh, I, I've heard about cosmic witches and sea witches and, and star witches and and so what what am i and there's so much pressure to sort of pigeonhole yourself into this little tiny category of magic for the rest of your life i mean there's there's plenty of people who are going to pressure you to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life in the third grade i'm not going to be a part of it <laughs> i want you to figure out who you are <clears throat> i had the question on instagram the other day it's just these list of epithets for different styles of witchcraft and can you please identify and define all of these topics for me and i can but it doesn't mean anything i can say i'm a green witch it doesn't mean anything to me or sally or bob down the street it doesn't mean anything to anyone except for me and it could change tomorrow i could change my my definition of these words tomorrow stop allowing the presence of witchcraft in your life 
to pressure you to feel things that you're you may not feel you may not be ready to feel and you're definitely not going to feel them for the rest of your life the things that we do and the things that we learn help us to grow as a person but by nailing yourself to the wall from day one saying okay i'm going to be a sparkle witch for the rest of my life i might not two years from now that may have nothing to do with my practice don't let anyone feel like you have to make these decisions in the first five minutes before you even really know who you are in experiencing experimenting and developing your witchcraft you will change anything that doesn't change dies it's pretty much how it works <laughs> you stop evolving you stop growing it, it falls out of the wayside so instead of telling yourself oh i'm i'm going to be a sparkle witch today figure out where you are right this minute as as jay said read everything you possibly can get your hands on my my favorite magical tool is my library card because i don't have to buy books before i can before i can read them i can go to the bookstore i can go to the the library and find books that really speak to me something that makes the hair on your arms stand up because we are all searching for that connection within ourselves by reaching out to podcasts. I have the Blackthorn Grove podcast by finding fabulous faces on YouTube. That's a great place to sort of figure out which direction you want to go in. But please don't feel like you have to nail yourself into a category. These things are only things that resonate with us, with where you are at this moment. But a quiz that you took online with 10 questions that have nothing to do with who you are as a person is not going to tell you who you have to be for the rest of your life. I see, <laughs> I see you guys on you. <laughs> you don't have to announce who you're going to be for the rest of your life. I promise. The ways that you feel about magic, the things that you feel today could change tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now. Allow yourself to figure out where you are right now and go from there. I just wanted to share something with you really quick before we, before I turn my turn over. Um, the fabulous Patrick was talking about ethics and I, I shared this with my, my beginner students because there's so much pressure to do this right thing and do that right thing and make sure that you don't ever do this other thing because that's not cool. Ethics is a very personal, private understanding of who you are as a person. So the thing I like to share with them is an actual snippet from Reddit a million years ago. It's got no attribution. I just, I share it every so often. Why hexing is the answer. Because it is our right to stand up to our abusers. Because it is bullshit to tell someone to take that abuse. Because it is not our job to heal the people who hurt us. Because we should support self-defense. Because pacifism is one belief system that does not apply to everyone. Because karma doesn't work how you think it works. Because sometimes magic is the last recourse of the downtrodden and the hurt and the people who cannot go to law enforcement or the people who are alone in their struggles. Because every witch has a right to do what they need to with their magic. And because it is not our job to heal our abusers. 
I mean, it's my turn. Is this me now? <laughs> no pressure at all. Um, I, I would like to say before I go any further, thank you all so much. I'm just I'm utterly honored that you all chose to be here tonight and, and do this this thing with your very valuable time for free for all these amazing attendees. That means so much to me, truly. Um, I, I definitely remember a time when cost was a barrier to information, to knowledge, to doing things like this. And for all of us to be in a position to give our time back and make something like this available, I think it's, it, it's really important. But what I wanted to talk to you about today involves first saying that I'm an author for Llewellyn. Uh, I'm a blogger, I'm Pathios. I have a website with a store where I sell pagan goods and all those things that make me sound like a cool and interesting and successful person, but, big but, big old but. Witchcraft is not prosperity doctrine. This is not Christianity, where they're gonna tell you that if you say the right words and do the right things, your life will be okay and successful. Casting the right spell will not make you not depressed. The spell for that is medication, you know? There's not a spell that's gonna make someone love you and it be genuine. No spell is gonna make you score perfectly on your test unless you try and put that work into it. Your life won't be perfect because you call yourself a witch and that's okay. I want you to know that today my house was crazy and I had children crying. They're still crying in the background. <laughs> you can hear like YouTube toddler shows going, it's horrible. Um, I'm wearing socks and yoga pants, very sexy. I've had this sweatshirt on for two days and my room is a lie. What you see online isn't always real. That's not reality. I don't even have a bra on. My idea of getting ready today was putting on some mascara so it looked like I had on makeup. This isn't real, it's an illusion. And you need to know that witchcraft is about being curious and learning and making something new of your mind and about what you can do for others, what you can give back to the world because that's how we make change. And that's all I had to say today, aside from this. Because everyone here is giving of their time so freely, you might be wondering, how can you support these artists? And that's hard when you don't have a lot and your own life is a little complicated, right? So how can we support creators, like the awesome people here, for free? I think that's a good question. I used to think about that a lot when I was new, like, this person's awesome, but I can't afford their books or I can't afford their class and how can I do these things? So some stuff you can do. If you can't afford the copy of their new book, call your library and hound them about getting a copy. That supports that artist, it's free and it makes it available for you and others. Support causes they care about. I myself uh, care about LGBTQ issues. I have rheumatoid arthritis, so I support the Rheumatoid Foundation for research. I'm in the COVID-19 vaccine trials, so sharing information about these things 
boosts up those creators. Call your local pagan bookstore or occult shop and ask them to carry their things or their books. That helps them out a lot. You can be a cheerleader for creators you care about, and that makes a very real difference in their lives, and if nothing else, makes them know that they're loved. So that's it for me, aside from questions. So if our lovely guests, speakers, want to unmute themselves, we'll chat and we'll do questions and talk and stuff. Okay. My speech was really short and boring. Like. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed talking to all of you all, and I took notes. I learned so much today. Like, <laughs> I just want to jump out and thank you, Mortellus, so so much for putting this all together. This was amazing, and I've learned so much from all of these other folks in my little Brady Bunch grid here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And yeah, this has been a delight and honor. Thank you so much. Yeah. I hope we get a chance to do this again someday. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Does so anybody have questions? Let's see, questions. What can I do yeah. if my parents don't want me to practice witchcraft? Very good question. <laughs> That's easy. Don't tell them. <laughs> it's new parents. Uh, I, I would say I, with that, there's definitely you, there's definitely a caveat with, is it going to be dangerous if you're practicing, if they find out? That is a real, um, that is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, it's complicated when you have people under your roof who don't agree with your practice and you got to hide it. That can cause issues with yourself, like reading these books, like always looking over your shoulder and, and thinking a bad thing about it because your parents don't approve. And yeah, it's complicated. I, I, I would say for myself, I personally did not practice when I was younger because my family didn't approve of it. So I, I didn't or wasn't able to get into it until I got a little older and was finally on my own without somebody, you know, always asking what I'm doing. Um, I think if you want to practice, but your family doesn't approve, but if you think if you're caught, it's not going to be a dangerous situation, hopefully. There's definitely ways to hide what you're doing. Um, I know some of the suggestions I gave, um, there's other things too, like if there's books that you would like, um, you know, do you have a friend who you can give the books to to hold for you? You know, do you have a place like a locker in school, maybe pre-COVID, <laughs> or like um, you know, a car, like a tire well that you can hide them in? Is there something that you could do in plain sight? Can you have an altar, but instead of having a fancy altar cloth, it's just your desk and maybe you have a feather for air and you have some water you collected from the, the ocean for the west and, and a candle for fire in the south and something like a pine cone in the north you know can you make it very low key that somebody looking at it wouldn't think anything about it i uh, i grew up in a household where it definitely would have been dangerous to practice witchcraft but for me it didn't have to be about practicing because i knew i was a witch in here you don't have to have that external practice but one tip that i would give is salt and be your everything altar. Salt is evaporated from the sea, so air. Salt, it can be mined from the earth, so it is earth. Salt can be burned, so it is fire. Salt, when burned, creates smoke, so it is air. And salt is expressed through every expression of yourself, tears, sweat, etc. 
so it is spirit. So every little vial or packet of salt in your pocket, and that's your altar. That's all you need. And also, I think it's also important. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Misha. Oh, I, I was actually going to follow on from uh, some stuff that you were saying earlier, Patty. Um, you don't need the like special consecrated tools and tchotchkes and you know pendants and whatnot to be a witch. And if what you're looking for are practices, things that you can do, um, there are a lot of practices that you can incorporate into your everyday life that look nothing like any kind of witchcraft. You can develop a meditation practice and that will serve you in great stead as you go on with, you know, studying witchcraft. You can spend time in nature, go on walks in the woods or whatever you have around you and learn how to listen and pay attention to what's going on in nature, in the world around you. And, you know, remember that you are just as much in nature on a crosstown bus as you are in some sort of sylvan grove. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important also to remember that there are different levels of my parents don't want me to practice. Like there's my parents don't want me to have anything to any truck at all with that witchcraft stuff because it's evil. Or there's look, we don't care if you read books or anything, but we don't want you doing anything with candles because you always forget to put them out when you leave the room. So That's there's different point. levels of what parents may or may not be willing to allow kids to have. And if you're fortunate enough to have the kind of relationship with your parents where you can have a conversation with them and ask that question like, well, okay, well, what can I do? Um, then obviously that's fantastic. Not everybody is that fortunate. But I think, you know, to kind of piggyback off of what Misha was saying, there are so many other things that you can learn now while you live under their roof that will serve you so well when you've moved out and you're on your own and you can cast the biggest, baddest circle right there in your living room. You can learn about, learn about the stars, learn about the moon, learn about all those dead people who came hundreds and thousands of years before us. What did they write about? What did they leave behind for us? Get out there and study the plants in your own backyard. What's growing there? What can you do with it? Learn how to do things like sew and make jewelry and bake and cook. All of these things will help you be an efficient spellcaster later if you can follow instructions in a cookbook. So there's a lot you can do. But I think the key right off the bat is effective communication with whoever the folks are in your family that are like, nope, we don't want the witchcraft stuff. It may be they don't want you practicing, but they can't stop you from believing. I'm, I'm dropping into the, the conversation right now. There's a book that I'm really, really fond of called Where to Park Your Broomstick. It's a teen's book. For which yes. It has a lot of great information, but particularly there's a chapter in there that addresses how to have a meaningful and productive conversation with your family about your beliefs. And uh, I think that can be really useful. Now, jumping off of something that Misha was talking about earlier, I actually did an episode not too long ago about magic in your everyday life. Even the small little things like watering the plant, taking a walk, cleaning, anything that you're working with energy, your own energy, that is magic. So let's see, what, what other questions do we have? Rolling down. 
Yeah, nothing's popping up in the chat as yet. They're all private questions. Um, let's see. I'm so sorry. I'm being terrible. Well, while, well, while you're talking, while you're looking, I can actually say something else. So um, one thing that I we didn't have as sort of a thing was, um, as a beginner, like having a daily practice is a really great thing to start now because mm -hmm. I am still trying to make sure that that happens. So some like one thing every day that just reminds you of your magical practice. It could be as simple as lighting a candle for a couple minutes, making your tea, <laughs> making your tea, making your coffee, just doing one thing that sort of grounds you into yourself. And especially in these times that we're in, I'm surprised we haven't said that yet, but like these times that we're in, um, having something that you can come back to day after day after day creates trust in yourself and it also creates a real sense of grounding. So. And I, I do. I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, oh, I no. just. Oh. <laughs> you go. I was just going to say, I do, the, I do my daily oracle poll, and that, no matter you know, if I'm doing a circle or what have you, that still keeps me. Around it, it still keeps me doing the work. I still have my my very first little pewter goddess statue. Aww. It was a gift to me when I was probably fourteen from my best friend in the whole world at that point. And before I left the house every day to go to school, I would grab a my bottle of dragon's blood oil, and I'd anoint her, and I'd anoint me, and it would remind me that. You know, I'm, I'm grounded, I'm protected, and I'm, is it before I left the house, before I went out to the world? I didn't drink coffee, I didn't drink anything, I just sort of rolled out of bed and ran for the bus, but it gave me a practice that I could touch stone every day. It reminded me that, that I was still important. Love it. Um, that some of the questions we've received are directed at individuals, and this particular one was to myself. Um, very long story short, your interview in Ashley's podcast helped me better understand my relationship with death and how part of my life's path is working with her. I remember that one of the things you suggested to do in order to be, uh, to have a better understanding of death as a verb and a noun is to work in hospice. Since it's 2020 and I'm not able to volunteer in hospices in person, what are some other things that you would recommend to do that are not in person to better understand death? I always say, and everyone's going to think I'm a cheese ball, but um, the first act of necromancy is raising yourself from the dead. You cannot understand death if you do not understand life. So focus on you and your body and paying attention to your breath and your heart and being aware of the life that you hold within you. That is an excellent daily meditative practice. Um, if you're interested in learning more about physical death as a practical act, um, I'd be happy to send anyone a resource list of, of really good source books that talk about mortuary sciences on a practical level. Um, for uh, spiritual approaches to death, I unfortunately would recommend my own book, which comes out in February, but uh, it's available for pre-order now. And, uh, Amazing. Um, I, th I being terrible at answering this question. COVID does make this very hard. But 
There are so many things you can do on a daily level to develop practice with death and especially during these times. Um, <laughs> keeping an altar to those who have died in the pandemic, making offerings on their behalf, having funerals as if, you know, we say act as if in witchcraft, have that funeral as though that person is there, wash their ethereal body and give them rights um, in place of the family that could not do that for them. Of course, funeral service workers stand in in place and do those things, but uh, having those spiritual rights on their behalf is something you can do. Um, you don't need a name or a face. Just find a connection with the humanity of it, and that's something we all have. Um, next question was for Hello, would you guys also mind speaking a little bit about skyclad practice and ways to reduce anxiety about it? That's a fun one. Mm -hmm. The best thing is, is that if you're in a practice with other humans who you trust and you're in a ritual space where you are skyclad, so is everybody else. Mm -hmm. used, to, used to say to me in English class all the time, like in, in college, taking a writing course and they'd say if, if everything is highlighted or if everything is bold then nothing is bold it's kind of like that <laughs> one's if naked that, nobody's naked the one person with pants on will feel, feel weirder than everyone else yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I, I had a something i had somebody tell me this once i was very not looking forward to that as an option in my life <laughs> and um I remember I was speaking to somebody when I was still a seeker and they, they weren't even, they're high priestess or a high priest, I'm sorry, in the tradition, but they weren't in my coven. Um, and well now coven. And the thing I remember that stuck with me that they told me we were in an Uber, like driving through the city after like a night of drinking was, um, you know, the people that you're with, you know, if it feels right, if they feel right, then your desire to practice with them and continue your spiritual path with them is going to overcome your fear to do skyclad practice. And that was 1000% correct. I had a lot of uh, childhood trauma tied up in my body. And that was a hard pill for me to swallow a little bit. Uh, and sometimes for some people, the, the ripping the bandaid off method is never going to work. <laughs> You're never going to be comfortable, but I will say that some there is value sometimes in being uncomfortable. Now, please refer back to Nisha's wonderful statements about consent. If you are uncomfortable in that kind of way, maybe check the situation. But that sort of discomfort that comes from trying something new and challenging yourself, that is useful. It doesn't do you any good not to be challenged by your craft. And Thorn Mooney wrote an excellent uh, article about exactly this topic and I'll put it in resources for everyone as well. Okay, I'm going to jump in because Wendy just asked, wait, what do you do if you're on your period and you're supposed to be sky climbing? Took the string up there. Um, yeah. Well, to start with, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know of any group cup. that 
everybody is sky clad at every circle, at least within the Gardnerian mm -hmm. world. You will find older women and younger women, for example, that have special wraps that they'll wear that time of the month or just because they have some issues they need to address. And in my experience, nobody really thinks twice about that. It's just mm -hmm. an understood. I have been in circles yeah. where individuals um, needed to wear underpants or, or some other item just because of the situation. And so who cares? We yeah. love everyone and we want to accommodate those issues. So, it, you know. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's one of the key things about being skyclad is like at first, you know, it's the first time you're naked in front of a bunch of people that you're not like in a relationship with. Like, oh, God, nobody wants to see this naked. Well, you know what? They're all thinking the same thing. Absolutely. You know, it's, yeah. it's a bit yeah. like if you go to a nude beach and you're afraid that you're going to get judged and you realize it's just a bunch of chubby 50 year olds walking around and there's nothing sexy about it. That's the thing with Skyclad is it's not meant to titillate. It's not meant to arouse. It's not meant to be seductive. It's simply part of the practice. And it's something that if you're with a group of people that you trust very much and that you know you are safe with them, sometimes you can step outside your comfort zone. There is a sense of vulnerability there because you are completely butt-ass naked, but so are they. I will throw this on the table. Um, uh, a lot of have had people ask me in the past what's the point what's the purpose of it mm -hmm. anybody who has stripped off their jeans at the end of a long day and danced around their house to Beyonce or something in their underpants you know exactly the usefulness of this <laughs> already know it's like when you take off your bra at the end of the work day <laughs> yeah. and fling it across I'm alive <laughs> <laughs> One thing moving the corset like it's yes. also useful to not catch yourself on fire Yes, that. I would like to add something um, yeah. to the conversation is that what my experience is that um, when you're in ritual and you're in that magic, everybody's beautiful. Like it, 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 everybody's beautiful and you feel beautiful and it's incredibly mm -hmm. empowering. And suddenly that sense of self-consciousness just kind of falls away. It just like, it just doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty amazing, you know, cause I've got my own body issues, but I don't when I'm in circle, it's pretty amazing. And there's, there, and there's nothing like being wild, free and drumming and just like, just going for it, just going for mm -hmm. it. The first time, like I, I realized I was like, oh shit, I'm naked and I need to drum crap. And so I, <laughs> But you, I, it was just there was there was a there was an openness and a connection to things that I didn't have before mm -hmm. that moment. And so. I will I will add to I remember when I talked to my high, high priest and high priestess for initiation about, you know, my fears. And at one point they said something to me like, well, you know, you're after a while, you're probably not even going to realize that you're clad and I was like no way absolutely not that's not a thing for me and <laughs> what do you know it's actually true you yeah when you're in that circle space you're so focused on the magic and the people that you're with and the energy that honestly you kind of forget mm -hmm. like oh I'm not wearing any clothes right now oh okay and the one time you are you're like why is it a thousand degrees in here this is the worst <laughs> right yeah <laughs> I mean, from a practical level, I'm sorry, you wanted to go make sure? No, no, you got it. Oh, just from a practical level, I mean, 
when you work magic and you want to step out of the everyday, you're literally leaving at the edge of the circle that mask that we put up. Mm -hmm. When you're nude, nobody cares that you have a six-figure job. Nobody knows. Nobody, you know, nobody cares that you have a doctoral degree. Nobody cares that you're driving a Merc, okay? It's just irrelevant. You're brought to your the least common denominator, and you're all equal. And even when you're still young and maybe fit within those confines of traditional beauty, you know, guess what? It doesn't stay that way. You know, and a lot of us started out, we had more hair, wasn't gray, 100 pounds thinner, but you learn to recognize the beauty in each other and the humanity in each other without all the bullshit trappings just hanging on. So. There, there's this um, metaphor that I'm fond of, and it, it has to do with how people judge one another's bodies. You walk into a forest and you see a tree that has a broken limb or it's gnarly or whatever. You don't ask the tree why it doesn't look perfect. You just assume that it got hit by lightning or maybe the wind blows a lot here. You just immediately know why the tree looks that way and it's still beautiful. In ritual, I think people are more inclined to behave that way toward one another. You just accept that that is who they are and who they have been made to be. Mm. Every difference is part of their story. There is one thing I would like to throw out in, in, in talking about this, and that's to acknowledge that there are people who have additional challenges sort of overcoming mm -hmm. their own body image issues for whatever reason. Uh, maybe they have physical limitations or damage or trauma that they're working to overcome. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they're queer or transgender people and their mm -hmm. relationships with their body have been really complicated by the ways that our culture projects things onto queer and trans bodies. And overcoming that to be able to say, okay, I'm going to take off my clothing and enter into this space where other people will be able to see the ways in which my body is non-normative, quote unquote, uh, can be really challenging. And I absolutely understand people saying, you know what, no, that's not work mm -hmm. I am in a place to do right now. It's not work I may ever be in a place to do. And that's okay too, because there is no requirement to do skyclad work in order to be a witch. There are traditions where that is the normative way to practice. Um, I'm in a couple of them, um, which, you know, but it's not like, oh, if you're going to be a witch, you got to get the kid off. Like, no, there are all right. kinds of posted buttons. I think that comes back around, though, to that whole piece about being in a space that you've chosen well with your chosen family, mm -hmm. where that becomes less of an issue. So if you don't feel safe to be your truest self, then maybe it's not the right group for you. That's a good thing to think about. Yeah. Now, this gets me thinking back, too, to my own initiation. Now, this is the first time I'm going to be in a sky-clad circle, okay? But generally, you just don't drop your clothing. Mm 
and boom, you're in the middle of naked bodies. There's a, there's a process. Now, mm-hmm. in my case, it was my sponsor, somebody that I knew and loved and trusted, took me into the bathroom and drew a bath for me, and we both disrobed together. So there was that trust. And when it was time for me to be brought to the edge of the circle, I was standing next to somebody that I trusted implicitly. And I knew, okay, I'm in good hands. Doesn't make the fear go away, but it helps you grapple with it a little better. I was in a situation similar for my initiation where it was my first time sky clad. And I was brought into a room where I was the only person wearing clothes. And you realize immediately how silly it is to be the only one wearing clothes. (laughs) (laughs) But next question. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a two-parter. Thanks for hosting. This is really great. Um, I have a couple questions. First, are magical items and ingredients, etc., actually the source of the magic? Or are they a symbol Mm -hmm. to help you focus your intention? Second, I've heard a lot about cleansing with sound. I like it a lot, but I'm having a hard time feeling like it's doing anything. Any tips? Those are two really good ones. Yeah, mm. I, have, I have an amazing. So, the ingredients, the the stones, the crystals, the whatever you have, have their own magical properties. Their their own implicit inherent energies. But so do you. You are the magic. So it takes active working with magic to release the energies of the things that you're working with to allow that to impact your your outer world to make the magic happen so yes to both things yes you are the magic but yes these also have their own individual energies it's just pushing them out into the universe to get it to do something that you need it i would say also i don't know if anyone else any of our other speakers do ceremonial magic or high magic or that kind of thing um if you get into more uh complex structural schools of magic occultism um, your specific ingredients have much more purpose and meaning, so you don't want to fiddle with that. But when it comes to the more intuitive practices of witchcraft, like we're talking about tonight, I, I agree with Amy. It, the magic is in you. Those those things can be your allies. Think of them like team members. They're like your, your partying members in your video game or whatever, but um, you can accomplish your goals without them. They just make it easier. Like I always say, when, I, when I'm doing a tarot reading or an oracle reading, these are my tools. They're the conduit for my energy. But I am the magic like you said. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, I do have a question here specifically for Arasanya. No. Do we, do, we, do we do the sound question, though? Oh, I no. want to make sure that we do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any comments on sound? I do what no one else does. Oh, okay. Uh, When you ring your bell, you can see, you can feel the sort of timpani of the the sound waves impacting your skin. You can feel the metal vibrating. You can see it in certain materials like guitar strings. You can see the, the string vibrating. Those vibrations are actually physically doing something. They're pushing those sound waves into and past you, just like with a drum, you can feel it in the different parts of your body. So you know that it's doing something because you can physically feel it, no matter, you know, whether you're a witch or not, you can feel the rhythm of the drum in the exposed skin of your body. So it's doing something because 
you can literally feel it. So it doesn't have to be super arcane and scary and magical. You can see it's moving. You can see those waves that are impacting everything around you. So you know it's doing something because it's physically doing something. I, I was once um, present for a performance art piece. And what the artist had done was created this sort of tunnel where someone was dropping feathers on them like snow. And what they did was struck a really perfectly tuned tuning fork. And when they struck it, it forced them all out to the wall. You could see it push them away. And it was all, yeah, it gives me the tingles now to think about it. There's something really beautiful mm. about it. There is physical force to it that clears a space. I, I promise if there's a moth near you when you strike the bell, it's getting pushed. Hmm. All right, for our pointed question, what is good protocol in terms of feeling called to work with deities that are not necessarily in your heritage or maybe mm -hmm. closed practice? Mm -hmm. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. I knew I was going to get that question. So this is my thought on this. If the gods are calling to you, you answer. Um, I would say that. I was in, I actually was at a PantheaCon uh, uh, speaker panel. I wasn't in it. I was watching it. And that was Crystal Blanton was talking and she got that question. And she said that, and I so totally switched the way I looked at building a relationship with deities at that point. She's like, if you are called by a God, seek that out and follow that. Because that is a personal thing. For me, the difference is when I begin, the difference is uh, taking from that tradition versus building a relationship with the deity because it's a personal thing. Like if I'm called by someone outside of my heritage, you know, I might try to see what they're first. And then if there's something really there that I might seek, then I would seek out a mentor from that tradition and sort of figure out like, how does this all fit together? Um, versus sort of like building this relationship and going, well, now I'm an expert and I'm gonna talk about it and I'm gonna teach all these classes about it. And then I'm gonna make money off of it and all of that. Often it doesn't go to that extreme, but that's the way I sort of negotiate that. Um, and I also, you know, if there's any slightly bit of discomfort, like, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this, then don't do it. That is wisdom. Agreed. Okay, next. I would add one more thing into that, though. Sure. People Great. should not get hung up on their biology this time around. I mean, mm -hmm. many different traditions of the craft, uh, I don't want to say believe, because my practice isn't faith-based but work with the notion of reincarnation. So this time you may be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but your soul has flipped genders, has flipped ethnicities many times since the beginning. So I just don't wanna see people get so hung up on that because that leads to some of what you'll see on the internet a lot where people are saying, well, Jews shouldn't be initiated. They should work the Kabbalah or BIPOC should stick with their, their indigenous practices. And it's like, no. Uh -uh. we're more than the sum of our body. So that's my two cents. Thanks for that, Sam. Another question we have is, what's the difference between a shrine and an altar? I, I have an amusing analogy for that. Yeah. Uh, to me, the difference is your family dinner or a formal banquet. The 
Mine mm. is a formal banquet where you have like uh, shrimp forks and stuff. It's very organized <laughs> and arranged. Uh, your altar is your family pasta where you might have bought something in a jar and maybe it's frozen, but it still mm -hmm. fed you and that's important. <laughs> mm -hmm. That is a good <laughs> That's pretty oh, accurate. <laughs> Boom. Where's the microphone? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> all right. Next. Next. Wants to so, spin and... off of Stouffer's lasagna as altars. You can do that. <laughs> no, I want lasagna. Thanks. Right? Yeah, right? I'm doing that too. Oh. I'm, I'm glad you guys like that one. I wasn't sure. <laughs> Um, let's see. Other questions? Okay. Um, thank you guys so much for offering this workshop. Workshop, It's fantastic. I greatly appreciate it. Um, regarding altars, is it okay to have one altar for multiple deities or ancestors? Am I crowding them? Secondly, regarding tarot cards, I have only had one deck about 15 years that I unfortunately had to dispose of. I have tremendous guilt about that and worry that my energy around cards will be off because of that decision, which I regret. Any thoughts? Don't worry about it. At the end of the day, tarot cards are pretty pieces of paper with symbols on them. The power to read is within you, not within the cards themselves. So don't don't sweat it. Some You would not be the first or the last person to have their tarot cards destroyed because because life life happens and sometimes you have angry family members that find them and dispose of them and or they get lost in a fire or a flood you know it, things happen so go find a, a deck that you love and replace it i know that um heather here is gently protecting my identity my yes, grandmother gifted me an antique uh, j swiss deck it was her only deck it was special to me uh, family heirloom and an antique and my first husband who did not uh, believe in the witcheries one day while I was away from home ripped them into a million pieces and left the pile in the middle of the living room my heart was broken still to this day I think about it and I can feel angry mm. tears well I'm angry on your behalf. Yes, yeah. exactly. I say we oh. curse his ass. <laughs> for me, so beginners, um, for here's me, how you do that. Heirloom, right? It, it was about an heirloom and an ancestral link, not about the cards. And it definitely didn't cost me my ability to read them. I never had that. I'm terrible. <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> but. So about altars, should we go back to that? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So crowding stuff. Here's what I've learned. Aphrodite wants a million altars. So I do this. It's not a million, it's three, but still. Um, in terms of like having multiple deities in maybe the same place, um, this is my way of looking at it. Do they play nicely with each other? Mm -hmm. um, because I, like I have a lot of Greeks that I work with, so I feel like they're pretty cool, but I wouldn't put the Morrigan next to some folks and or any folks for that matter. Um, <laughs> and the Morrigan. Oh, that's I, I have to comment on it's, this because I, I work with the Morrigan. 
Okay, so for some of you guys, it may be the person who asked this question is asking because they have a small house or apartment. Mm -hmm. I live in 800 square feet and I have a wall that's about four feet wide and eight feet tall and that's where my altars get to be. So what I did to deal with that, and you can see if you go on Instagram, those are my for real altars. I actually share pictures. I don't think anyone's cursing my babies because I share photos. Nobody cares enough about you to do that. Um, so I bought on Amazon for like $20, a pack of five little floating shelves about this big. They're, they're like 11 inches wide and I have them scattered. I sort of have a collage. The Morgan is one of them. Anubis is one. Arisha Oya is one. Odin is one. You would not think these guys would get along. What we've worked out is the height difference. Oya's happy as long as she's taller than the Morrigan. <laughs> the Morrigan is happy as long as she has the most stuff. Anubis doesn't give a shit about their drama. So negotiate with them if you have a tiny space. So it kind of comes back to this idea that gods have agency. They're petty gods bitches. have preference. <laughs> gods will tell you what they want. Like high school around here, it's terrible. But yeah, if you have a small house, like there's clever solutions. Like get the shelves that have like the multi stack and use like a different area. That's sort of I don't know about you guys, but that works really well for me. It's pretty the other thing to keep in mind is if you have the space, there's no rule that says you can only have one altar and you got to put all your shit on it. Yeah. Um, I have my primary altar in my living room, which is, it's an old Ikea bookshelf that I found on Craigslist and flipped over. I didn't even have to assemble it. Thank you very much. But that's my primary altar. That's where I do the bulk of my ritual work. The other side of the room is where my ancestor altar is. My ancestors, they want their own space. They'll share it with each other, but they want it to be their own space. So they have their space. Upstairs in my bathroom, I've got a giant claw-footed tub that is just oh, chef's kiss. Can't even tell you how amazing it is. And on the wall above it, there's a small shelf. That's my healing altar. At my desk, I have a small altar space for work-related juju that has to be worked. So if you've got the room and a little bit of creativity, there's no reason you can't have different altars for different purposes in addition to having different ones for different deities. Also, if I can spin off of that. So I have those altars on my one wall and those are kind of formal, like you're a deity I work with a lot and this space is something I gift you, right? Mm -hmm. Those spaces are important. Like they would say in comedic practice, uh, the acknowledgement of the deity is the gift that you give to them. Um, it uh, lets their name be known and encourages other people to ask about them and that is the gift, right? But that doesn't mean that your working altars have to be anything like that. Working altars can be the spaces where you fucking work. This is my desk. I've got my little Baba Yaga mushroom. I've got my little Anubis here with me, little Nunu. This um, is the workbench. Yes. After the tools. Uh, I've got, I've got my altar in the bedroom, but I've got my trying to my deities out here in the living room. So this, I threw this cup. I make pottery and you see this terrible crow that I carved into it. This is the Morgan's little presence on my working space. It's filled with feathers from my chickens because she wanted them. I don't know. Um, I have, you know, it's about the little things you keep around you in your day-to-day -day life. If you look mm. behind me, you see I have um, Sandman's death beside me, and she's 
her mm -hmm. own sort of altar. I have all these like female icons from comic books and they're sort of a picture of empowerment. Your working spaces can be just where you work. I knew there was a reason we were friends. <laughs> I have an other lady. Indisputable Batwoman. And a reminder to keep one's mental health in check. <laughs> I am That's perfect. Alters, they don't have to be fancy. They can just be where you are. They just have to work. They just right. have to work, yes. And really, I mean, that's just kind of true about witchcraft full stop. Yeah. And another question. Okay. How do I look like a witch? How do people know I'm a witch? <laughs> we just know. We have radar. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, that's sort of true, but it is. <laughs> you know, I'm actually getting ready to do an episode on the witch aesthetic. It's funny, oh. like, uh, if you're in Walmart in my very rural town, it's like you can pick out the people who are not going to the Baptist church on Sunday. <laughs> you, just, you just know it might be a tattoo or a piece of jewelry. And it doesn't even have to be a pentagram. Like, I know what your amber's about. Like, nobody's wearing that on purpose. <laughs> right. I have a, so I have a podcast episode I mentioned where I, I talk about how to hide your witchcraft practice. And at the very end of it, I stress that you don't need to dress like Stevie Nicks to be a witch. It's not a requirement. Um, that being said, the witch aesthetic is definitely in right now. So if you ever did want to kind of slide on, you know, towards the black leather and the shawls and build that up over time <laughs> you can probably very easily start to add to your collection now because it is honestly the fashion of 2020 i suppose well actually no the fashion of 2020 is sweatpants and leggings let's be real but <laughs> yeah you you don't have to dress that way to be a witch but if you would like to dress that way it is technically in right now but you might not have anybody bat too much of an eye now, I, I don't know what the question asker had in mind, but when I read it, I, what crossed my mind was, how do I subtly let other people know that I'm a witch without like wearing yeah. a t-shirt that says I'm a witch? That uh, was kind of how I interpreted it. Me too. And I'll tell you something that was, that's been my experience. Um, so I work a full-time job in the corporate world now, and I have since 2013. Before that, I spent seven years as a bookseller in a big chain store that rhymes with yarns and bubble. And I was there all the time. And it didn't matter. People would come in, and I could be wearing normal people clothes, which, you know, I, I live in the Midwest. It's like, you know jeans and a sweater that's that's kind of how i dress this time of year um people would gravitate towards me and they'd find me and they'd be like excuse me you look like you would know about <laughs> those the, the books over there like with ray buckland you know like they knew they knew i was the go-to person um and you know, one that of the area things, a little bit it was just, you know, it, it was like you, you give off the pheromones or something. But I think a big part of it, too, I always tell people, if you want to be really subtle about it, you don't want to wear a pentacle the size of a steering wheel, just wear a couple of really small, strategically placed pieces of jewelry. Because we'll spot you. It, it, we will be like, nice pen. You know, it, it, people who know will know. Um, so a little bit of discreet pagan jewelry, so you don't, you know, 
know, scandalize the sweet little old ladies in your Walmart or whatever. If you want to be subtle about it, a little bit of jewelry goes a long way. I guarantee you, we'll find you. Do all your grocery shopping between 10 a.m. and 1 on Sundays, and you'll find every fucking pagan in your town. That's right. It's true. You'll find them. It uh, is true. I want to I wanna say a funny story. So I put, saw somebody in the chat, I think their name's pronounced Janice, about when they hear a merry meet, that's how they know. I have a funny story about that. So I moved to an apartment complex back in April, and I had to, the day I was moving in, I had to park my car in the front of, by the leasing office, and the back of my car has um, a, uh, like a moon sign on it, like, you know, like the phase of the moon, and it has like these little magic hands, and there are these pretty holographic stickers. And I was walking into the leasing office uh, with my family as well, and they, they don't know that I'm, I practice. So I was walking in, or they walked in before me, and I was kind of, you know, straggling behind them. And I go to open the door, and this woman comes out with her dog, and she looks at my car, and then she looks at me, and I'm just hurrying, like, excited for my first apartment, so I'm not paying attention. And she looks at me, and she goes, oh, blessed be. And I was like, oh, thanks, and then, like, just kept walking because I didn't you know when somebody opens the door for you and they say thank you and you're like oh thank you like you don't really pay attention mm-hmm. and then after i took a couple of steps into the leasing office i said oh my god wait a second <laughs> she just said blessed be to me and then i realized that she saw the stickers on my car and probably put two and two together and i kind of like blew her off so to this day it is now november i still look for this woman and her dog in my apartment complex so i can go to her and be like i'm so sorry i did not realize it was my first time moving in an apartment and i was excited and distracted um, so if you ever say blessed be or merry meet to somebody there's a chance they might not get what you're saying at first um and it's funny because i think back to it and we had she we had like a a moment where we just stared at each other and I thought it was kind of weird and then I processed it when it was too late. But I think it's also fair to to say that there are some people that don't care to be identified. Uh, well that was um, my other thing of... too after I realized I realized I couldn't even actually say anything to her because I had right. my family around and I didn't want to draw attention of why I'm talking to this random woman. Uh, you might find yourself in situations like I am, the question asker. Um, <laughs> in my everyday life, obviously, I'm, I'm a mortician, I'm a death care worker, so I find myself often in situations where it's not really politically advantageous to me to be an out witch. But I do want to be able to help those families. So it's very important to me that I get subtle clues in my appearance mm-hmm. so that they know that they can ask me and I'm a safe person. Um, I have found that using really obscure occult symbols are often overlooked by uh, non-pagans, mm-hmm. but will be spotted by anyone. So you might try like uh, a weird uh, seal from Solomon, and if anyone does ask you about it, you'd be like, oh yeah, this is from King Solomon's book or whatever. Um, I have my wedding ring has a tiny, tiny uh, moon on it. People often spot that. I have this tiny ear cuff with a moon carved on it. Um, little things like that work really well. But using pagan symbols that are just really offbeat work real well, um, mm-hmm. especially the the Solomonic symbols because they look like mandalas, that sort of thing, and nobody really bats an eye at them. But you, the pagan folk will spot them. 
or if you're the sort of person who you know wears like you know like a little you know like little round pins on your jacket or whatever that have you know pictures or messages on them you know you can get one that says something fairly innocuous like as above so below and if somebody is like well what is that supposed to mean you can just be like oh it's just another way of saying same shit different day but if somebody <laughs> comes up to you and goes oh yeah, okay then you're good in my job we can't wear things like that that have words at all sure, sure. um i have a suit that i wear and i can have one pin on my lapel and i often wear just a five-pointed star not a pentagram it's just a star and uh, that will often catch people's eye especially if i turn it over <laughs> uh, co-workers will occasionally be like oh your thing's upside down oh i'm so sorry let me fix that okay another question um, and by the way, um, we have crossed nine o'clock. We've been here two hours. Anyone who doesn't have time to stay with us is welcome to go back to their wonderful lives. If anyone wants to stay and keep hearing questions till we get to the end of them or answer them with me, I'd be also delighted for that. Um, totally up to everyone here. But the other question uh, I see in front of me is, what are some ways to let go of the ego and truly learn to trust yourself and your intuition? It takes time. You're not, that's something you have to develop over time. Yeah, doing it. Even the best of us have mm -hmm. off days. We <laughs> yeah. Well, that yeah. just unfolds organically. Yep. And to a point that's important, but we're not Eastern practitioners. We don't have to separate the ego. What we do have to do is keep it in line so that it doesn't rule our lives. But I've never met a witch yet that didn't have a big ego. Um, another quick question, and this is from one of the younger people in attendance here. Um, earlier, someone was talking about sigils. I've been trying to read up on them, but it seems like everyone has a different opinion. Some people think you need to forget them. Some say charge them. Others say just draw them and you're good to go. Can you give any clarification on that? Also, my dad says hi. <laughs> um, I, did, I, I do want to say just real quick, I did post a, a link to an article in the thread already, and it's a collaboration between myself and that Kentucky witch. And it does talk about my own method for sigil making, and there's a whole list of resource books in there, some of which other folks have already mentioned in the thread. So I'll let that be my opinion. Everyone else, everyone else go. So I'm the one who brought up sigils. Um, I will say if you ask 100 different wishes, you'll get 100 different answers. Um, there's no right or wrong. And in a kind of off topic, but somewhat related, um, you know, you don't need to figure out the absolute best way the very first time that you do it. Witchcraft is a journey. It's a lifelong practice. It's not a fair weather activity. Um, you have all the time in the world to experiment to see what works for you. A practice not a perfection that's well said yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and it is an art uh mm -hmm. at least you know from my perspective witchcraft is very much an art it is a way of expressing yourself your desires and your will so play with it have fun with it see what works for you um you know there are so many different like techniques and styles and ways of making and executing sigils and they all work for the people that they work for. And I don't think any of us can tell you, oh, this is how you do it, and this is the only way it'll work. 
for you. Yeah, what works for you? Mm -hmm. Our next question, it was directed at me, and this person asked where they could pre-order my book. Find it at mortellus.com, the same place that you signed out for this class, if you want a signed copy, or you can find it wherever fine books are sold, or you can also hound <laughs> your local bookstore or library about hearing it. Llewellyn.com. Also, um, someone says, do you have tips on how to practice intuition over logic? Never give up on your logic, people. Uh, when I try to make predictions and practice my intuition, my logical brain tends to take over. Or when reading tarot, I feel like I need to read the whole book meaning uh, and meanings to understand what's going on. Any tips would be great. Um, I have a few. Go ahead. Um, what I invite you to do is like tap into all of your feeling nature. Um, how does it feel in your body? How does it feel in your chest? How is your how is your heart reacting to this? How is your gut reacting to this? I'm I am a firm believer that the gut does not lie. And anytime I have not trusted my gut, it has typically not been good. So I, I tr trust the gut, trust your body, trust how your body feels, not just what your head is saying. Because um, our bodies are very very intelligent and they can tell us a lot about should I do a thing? Should I not do a thing? And when it comes to this idea of predictions, understand, you know, I, I also invite you to, to consider that the future can change on a dime because we have choice. And when I do divinatory work, it is based on what is here and now with a potential outcome. And that what comes to us gives us an opportunity to make changes along the way. So that's what I have to offer on it. And I, I, have, I have an opinion. It might be an unpopular one. Do it. This opinion <laughs> is for the responsible and the adult. Okay. And for those who don't have problems with what I'm about to mention, you'll know who you are. Anyone who's ever had a little too much to drink knows the logic goes with it. So have a drink or two before you read cards. Drink a beer <laughs> and like let that settle in a little. And then just let go into it. That can be a good tool, but don't let it be a crutch. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. when I the do reason why alcohol is called spirits. <laughs> when I do a reading, it's basically, here's the book. There goes the book. We're reading right from the gut, just like you know, Heather mm -hmm. said. It's it's a tool. It's working your energy. It's working your intuition. Okay. Yeah, I I just want to add one more thing to it. Of, um, it it's so important to put aside the intellectual or the spiritual when you're first starting out. Um, I myself am very much an academic person. I work in very researchy type field and. Um, you know, I really struggled with that with myself when I first got into my outer court and finally, like, you know, I kept being told this, put aside the intellectual, just experience it and, and stop trying to explain it, essentially. Uh, I wasn't told like that, the, the stop trying to explain it kind of came from me. So uh, I was doing these exercises and, and I was doing certain things and meditations and, and so on and path workings and I, at the end of them, I would stop trying to rationalize it. 
and I would say, you know what? No, I have this experience. I'm just going to leave it at that. Move on to the next thing. Don't think too crazy into like, oh, well, I could have thought this and this could have happened and X, Y, and Z. And I'll tell you, once I started doing that, after a little bit of time, I started having experiences that I was like, okay, okay, this is interesting. I don't think I could have made that up, but we'll see. And then I kept having more experiences and more experiences. And I got to a point where I could no longer rationalize what was happening. And not only that, it wasn't just me losing an ability to rationalize, is that these experiences would also happen with other people around who would have these same experiences. But if I hadn't have put aside that intellectual and just forced myself to just experience it, I don't know if I would have had these things happen. Um, so it's, it's much easier said than done. It is really a hard thing, especially when you're first starting out, especially coming from, you know, if you're in college or school and you're used to that academic mindset, um, but it really is worthwhile. And I would recommend have your experience and kind of put it to the side and try not to go too deep into why it might not be real. And then do that a bunch of times and then see what happens. Next yeah, up. the biggest thing, go ahead. Do you like to add? Yes, the, the biggest thing you can do, my, my first high priestess said, you know, take the, the little white book, read it, and then throw it away. I can't throw away a book. It just, I, I, would, I would break out into hives. Can't do it. But <laughs> recognize that it's time for, once you've read it and you start working with those cards, it's time to listen to yourself. You are the person doing the reading. The, the reading will come to you as it, as it is. Whether you're using an app on your phone or you're using the, the actual cards in your hand, the message for that person is what comes out of you. The, and the best, thing, the best way to know that it is really real, that it is really the message, is that it surprises you. You, mm -hmm. you can't just go into things and, and map them out for yourself before the reading has even happened. That's, that's projection. But when it, the things that start to come out of you surprise you, then you know that it's, that it's really real, that it's really happening. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree with that. There, there's been so many times where I'm like, I would have not thought of this on my own. There's no way. Mm -hmm. And that's when you know. The next person asks, do any of you not work with deities? Does your magic come with, from within you or do you call on deities regularly? Why not both? <laughs> I work with deities, but I also don't always work with deities. Um, I work with them for very specific things that I need to work on um, a lot of times I work separately simply with my ancestors I do a ton of ancestor work um, and then there's times when I don't involve either my ancestors or my deities it's all just like all right cast and go um, but I think everybody's practice is different you know if you feel called to work with a deity then then do it <clears throat> but don't try to force it you can't put a square peg in a round hole yeah in fact just sitting here, quick thinking back, I can't tell you the last time I specifically worked with a deity when working magic. Mm. It was always separate. Mm -hmm. um, I work with deities, but especially when I was first starting out, uh, the deities I worked with were nameless and faceless gods and goddesses. I didn't feel the pull to have to identify who they were. I would say I, I work with, hi, um, I do work with deities and I do call upon them daily, but I would say my magic comes from within myself 
there may be some amongst us here who um, may have received or may derive some of their magic from an egregore as part of their tradition, um, but that does not erase what's innate within us. I look at deity and egregore and things of that type as amplifiers for my magic. They just make it a little bigger, a little louder, maybe pointed in a direction. Um, but, but that does not mean that I need them to do my magic. Yeah, I think there's a distinction that is drawn between uh, theurgy, which is working with gods, and thaumaturgy, which is wonder working, essentially. It's, you know, sort of straight up pure magic that doesn't involve invoking deities. Um, and you can do, like, I've done both. I've done, I, I've done both in the context of the same ritual circle. It's just, you know, what's going to work? What are my needs at this moment? Um, we have one more question in the thread, and it can be our last for the night. Okay. Something that is holding me back is the fear of drawing negative energies toward me. Any thoughts on how to overcome this? And oh boy, I have strong opinions about this one, if you guys don't mind. Because that's so tied into the work that I do with death. Because it's something that terrifies people, the idea of an angry paint coming home with them or something. Mm -hmm. Just like in life, you can make choices about who you are interacting with, who your friends are, and where you hang out, how you behave as a person. You know that if you go to a dive bar at 2 in the morning, you might meet an asshole, right? It's a possibility, and you've taken that on yourself. It's the same when you do magic. Maybe if you're doing something sketchy, something you don't understand very well, maybe you're not ready for it. Maybe it's not a place for you if it's not somewhere you're comfortable. But if you make good and appropriate choices about what you're doing, you're, you're not going to have those problems. However, however, it's always going to be a time walking down the street when you've made all the right choices and it's two in the afternoon that you are going to meet an asshole anyway. But just like in that daylight situation on the sidewalk, you can tell them to fuck off. Bang your pots and pans till they go away, you know? Terry Pratchett said that walking through a dark forest at night, a witch should never be afraid because she should be confident that she is the most dangerous thing in there. And you remember that when you're doing your magic too. But don't go to dive bars at two in the morning. <laughs> Bonus points for quoting Terry Pratchett. <laughs> Anyone else, any other takers on that topic? Yeah, I, I think a lot of that, I, I, I get messages from people about that kind of thing a lot. And I think a lot of it is a holdover from their previous religious or spiritual path, whatever it might've been, that somehow they're doing something bad. And now you're just you're going to bring home something bad with you and you're going to attract bad energy, which is basically our equivalent of saying you're going to hell, hell, hell. Right. But the fact is, if, you know, here's the thing. Magic is messy. Magic is dirty. Magic is muddy and bloody. And there's times when it's just downright unpleasant. And if you're not prepared for that, you might not be at a point where magic is something you need to invest your time and energy in. Because just like with 
with any other aspect of your life, you're going to encounter the bad along with the good. But if you do make good decisions and you make educated, wise choices, you reduce the risk to yourself. You're not going to pick up negative energy just because, you know, someone left a rock on your front step. That's not how any of this works. But you can cultivate a life for yourself where what you attract is the things that you want, the positive energy and the abundance and the happiness and the joy and the authenticity that you crave. Once you do that, you create a space where there's no room for any of the yuck. So it's just, you know, make good choices, kids. And it goes back to um, have boundaries. Mm-hmm. Have, have those boundaries, boundaries and be willing to firmly enforce them. No, with a little bit of oomph behind it. A lot of magic is understanding and intent. You might not know for most of your life that felt tip pens are super magical, but once you know it, they work for you, right? Let me give you a clue. Because I'm a big nerd for salt. Love it. Love it a bunch. A whole bunch of your body is salt. You need it to live. It's a big percent of the liquid content of your body is saline. You are your own salt ring. Live with that intention. Mm-hmm. Nothing's getting in here. You can protect yourself with, with the salt of your body. You are your own boundary. So before we go tonight, I have one last thing from someone to leave you with. But before I I pull that up, I would like to say thank you again, everyone, for being here um, and and those who had to leave as well. I'm going to be posting this tomorrow on my website for streaming, and Amy's going to be hosting it on her podcast as well. And I'll be putting out a list of resources where you can find everything that everyone talked about, but also connect with all the people that were here tonight. Um, To the young people in attendance, I would like to say that I I do understand that cost can often be a barrier. So if there's anything in terms of streaming classes or workshops or anything I have on my website that interests you, but if cost is a barrier, reach out to me and I'll make it available to you at no cost. So the last thing we had from uh, anyone in private questions was this, and it was for Patty in regard to her baseball uh, spell. Mm -hmm. And this was Chase's feelings about it. Yes, (laughs) yes. Yeet that thing on out of here, baby. Thank you guys so much. And with that, I will say good night. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming. Good night, everybody. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.